everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. But before we delve into our episode today, I wanted to tell you about another podcast that I think you will enjoy listening to. It's called Are We Europe? If you've ever wondered what it would be like to navigate Europe through sound instead of Google Maps, you want to tune into Are We Europe to hear sound-rich podcasts every week about European identity and culture. Are We Europe is home to podcasts like The Europeans, Connected and Disaffected, Sarajevo Calling, and Europarama. They tell meaningful and border-breaking stories from all over the continent. And you can listen to these and other podcasts from Are We Europe website or wherever you get your podcast from. And now back to today's episode. Like me, many of you, environmentally conscious or not, probably do the bare minimum of separating out the stuff you can recycle from the rest of the trash. But did you know that only 14% of what we actually put in the recycling actually gets recycled? Well, my guest today is Michaela Druckmann, founder and CEO of Grey Parrot, whose mission is to improve recycling efficiency using AI. Founded in 2019, Grey Parrot is now recognized as the hottest climate tech startup by Europass in 2020. And more recently, Grey Parrot has also been recognized by CB Insights as one of the top 100 AI's most promising companies globally. Phew, I got that right. Okay, I'm really looking forward to hearing more from Michaela about her mission and what she has learned so far in building the business. So welcome, Michaela. Thank you, Anita. It's a pleasure to be here. So Michaela, let's start off with, how did you come about the idea of a great parrot, which by the way, is a really cool name of a company. So the reason why we started the company was very much led by the purpose of the company. So my co-founders and I met at the previous company where we used to work called Blipper, where we built a large-scale augmented reality visual search solutions for customers. And essentially, we were at the cutting edge of this technology of image recognition. But in parallel, in our personal lives, our interests, our values were quite different, where we were looking at, you know, sustainability problems, the climate crisis, making choices in our personal lives that were kind of more and more uh, sustainable, but our work was not geared towards that. And the first thing we wanted to do is how do we match those two? How do we apply all our expertise on our learners, but, but for something where we can have, of course, a business impact, but also a positive impact in the sense of sustainability. And then on my side, my family's business has been in petrochemicals and plastics and recycled plastics. So I did have maybe uh, more knowledge than the average person on the sector. And so that really triggered a lot of curiosity for me on the waste crisis, on the plastic crisis, understanding the root cause and what was happening. And we started seeing an opportunity of match those two. And that's how we started in 2019, really with that mission of how are we going to use our core expertise uh, in technology and start tackling some of these big, big challenges of our time, like the waste crisis. So you and your co-founders kind of had this idea that you could apply this vision, technology, and AI to recycling. But then what did you do? So the way we approached it is that we started looking at the entire supply chain of waste. And that was 
you know, both doing research and reading and understanding what is going on, looking at the data, all of that, but mainly speaking to loads of people. So we spoke to hundreds of people, attended recycling conferences, literally went stand by stand, asking questions on how it happens, where are the problems, where are the challenges, et cetera. And then we started forming kind of few assumptions around where those problems are. And we started iterating different solutions. And so this went all the way from how can we help people recycle with a mobile app all the way to very industrial use cases. And so we took a very kind of lean startup approach, a very agile approach to try to really get to the core of, of these issues. And so it was really amazing because we built our first model, you know, we were all bringing trash from our home and like taking tons of pictures. So we have like all these pictures of us, like with tons of waste in an office, just frantically, you know, crushing them, taking pictures just to build our first prototype types. And that's how it starts. And then you show this to someone, you see how they react, you see uh, what happens if it creates interest. And essentially it took us six months, I would say, to really refine that. And what we realized is that the biggest area of impact that we could have was very much in the industrial use case, tackling the sorting and separation of waste. And this is the phase in the, in the value chain where the waste is basically uh, together. So you have recyclates. So let's say you put your recyclates in your bin. They're all, you know, paper, cardboard, plastics, they're all mixed up. And so although individually they're all valuable and recyclable, together nobody's going to buy that because you can't recycle that. And so it has to go through this separation phase. And at that point, that's where it becomes a secondary commodity that has financial value. And the cost of that separation is very high. And for us, we wanted to play in that field where we help lower the cost of that separation and make basically recycling and sorting more financially viable. But also we create more transparency. So one of the biggest thing that we found in our kind of research is there is such little data on, on waste, on what's in it, where is it coming from, was the composition, was the primary materials in there? And then how does it end up? Was the quality at the end and where is it going to go? And so the main thing we're tackling here is providing digitization of waste. So we basically analyze materials, brands, objects, using computer vision to provide real-time data for waste managers to better operate their facilities, to understand the financial value of the waste, and essentially help them as a business. But in turn, it also helps them divert from landfill, increase recycling rates, and ultimately have the positive impact that we want. The last thing I wanted to add is also that increasingly, because waste and resources are being recognized as a, as a key problem, part of sustainability, so we need more solutions. There's also a lot more regulation coming in. So one of the big events that happened in the recent years is that China stopped importing uh, waste from the Western world. And so that created a very big shift in the industry, forcing everyone to think about their infrastructure, think about local recycling, uh, and increase the quality of the materials that we output. But also you see, especially in Europe, lots more regulation around not just recycling targets, but also what we call extended producer responsibility. So really making the producers of materials more responsible on the full life cycle of those products. And that's where data comes in, because if you want to reinforce 
a lot of these regulation and policies, we're going to need much better information. And today we measure less than 1% of the waste flows. And so that's where we're trying to really empower the whole ecosystem from regulators, waste managers, recyclers with better real-time data to be able to make data-driven decisions. Well, there's so much in what you've said, Michaela. I have so many questions. So let me start at a very micro level. Like when I recycle, right? I know that I'm supposed to put plastic and glass and paper and cardboard, but nothing else. And a lot of the packaging has like all these weird symbols, whether it can be recycled or not. And some of them just say, check the local recycling. And sometimes I don't know what to do with that. Like, do I put it in or do I not put it in? If I understand correctly, you're not saying this should be recycled, this shouldn't. All you're saying is this waste has all these components and then you're leaving it up to the waste managers or whoever to figure out what they want to use. Because I think every country even has like different recycling systems and conditions and rules. So is that what you do is you're providing the digitization and the data and then you can allow people to customize what they do with the different components of the waste that's now data. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Anita, because there are big differences between countries, even between boroughs sometimes. And so you have to build systems that are modular. And unfortunately, the current systems right now are very rigid. So these plants are built to deal with one type of waste, one type of set of regulations. But because this keeps changing, we need to have basically much more flexible systems that can adapt to different rules, that can adapt to different materials that are coming into the market. And that's where basically machine learning based computer vision is very important because we're not looking at it like a laser, you know, mm -hmm. just one, you know, what's the polymer of that material, but we're looking at it with a full context, right? So is it a bottle? Is it contaminated? Is it not? What shape it is? What color it is? And therefore it becomes much more flexible in terms of system. I just want to point out that some of the, some of the things that you mentioned around, you know, I don't know what to do with the waste. And, and a lot of that needs to come also from the packaging industry, yeah. communication. So some things, of course, ha can be solved with technology, which we are working on. But what we noticed in our kind of research and journey is that certain things are really a question of better standardization, better communication, better rules, better policy around yeah. packaging as well. And that's going to be very important in the coming years. You're right. It's a very complex problem that requires many different people to come together to make the ecosystem work. Exactly. So when we talk about the ecosystem, how did you figure out who would be the most interested in this? Yeah. And so that was also part of our journey in the first six months where we didn't know. <laughs> so we spoke to every stakeholder. So we spoke to local authorities. We spoke to brands. We spoke to private waste management companies. We spoke to regulators, associations, you know, really everybody in the, in the supply chain, machinery companies, integrators. I mean, you name it. We literally went all, all around. And then it becomes very clear where the biggest pain points are and essentially where the biggest financial loss is as well. And therefore, that's where solutions make more sense. Now, it doesn't mean that it's limited to that, but we really try to get to the biggest pain point that we could see and tackle that first to start with. And for us, that's the private waste management companies that essentially need to take this 
waste, which, you know, essentially is more resources that have negative value and transform them into this secondary commodity so that it's accessible in the market and so that people can buy it and recycle it. And so that's where we saw the first kind of financial gap that we could help with. You know, Michaela, I feel like this validation phase that you just talked about is so critical because it, it's so easy when you have an idea and you're so convinced that this is a problem that yeah. there's no solution for to jump in to start building it. I'd like to dig into that process that you conducted a little bit. How did you collect that data through these interviews in a systematic format? Looking back, what did you feel you did really well there? And what is it that if you had to do it again, you would do it differently? Yeah. So you're right. This is an absolutely critical phase of, of starting a, you know, a startup. And I think that's where a lot of companies get it wrong because you're so stuck on your idea that you can't listen anymore to the feedback or to the customer. And I think that's something that I learned quite early on. I, I read Lean Startup Machine. I did quite a few workshop trainings around Lean Startup. And, and it's so brutal. It's like, you are biased. You need to know you are biased. And so the feedback that you're getting needs to be neutral. Are people engaging? Are people buying? Are people committing? There needs to be something that happens, not just your friends telling you, oh yeah, this is this sounds great. This is so cool. Yeah. Because, you know, people can't say the truth. <laughs> yeah. That directly sometimes, or simply they don't know. And so... We were very focused on getting that, you know, to that real truth, essentially, from the from the customers. So the way we did it, uh, first of all, is that it was a process that we all went through. So at that time, we were about four people, four or five people in the company. So it was not just me, but we all went to these conferences. Everybody had a mission to talk to certain people, to ask certain questions and come back, uh, for example, with feedback. And then we would map out the entire value chain and start writing pain points, problems, uh, solutions, and, and really kind of mapping that out very well. So I think one thing we did very well is talking to many people. I would say in terms of recording that data, we could have done a better job. And that's what I tell a lot of entrepreneurs now, like that early insight that you get, structure it as much as possible because it's it's really golden data yeah. even if it means no even if it means people don't want that it's very very good data to then prove your story for what you want to do for what you want to do next so i would encourage any entrepreneur to really make that quite a systematic recorded process as much as possible because that's going to be the foundation yeah. of your product market fit essentially and then the next stage of that is start prototyping so doing small experiments that are not too costly, not too time consuming so that you can start showing things to people and you see how they react and you see where the interest is coming from. And for us, when we started doing that, there was, you know, oh yeah, nice to have. And then at some point when we started talking about the composition and building our first prototype uniting and putting it into a facility and getting the data, we really saw kind of clear traction. Like it was hmm. very clear that people were responding to that, that they wanted that. And we started even getting inbound from there. And so for us at that point, six, nine, six, nine months in, we fully redirected the company towards that problem and that product, essentially. I want to continue to focus on that six to nine months. <laughs> so 
another angle, like you're busy doing these interviews, meeting people, trying to figure out this data. There's so much just learning about the space and the value chain. And you're telling me that you also spend a lot of time reading this lean startup. So talk to me a little bit about your own entrepreneurial journey, or did you have an entrepreneurial streak before you started Grey Parrot? And if you didn't, what did you do in those early stages to So a lot of my learnings come from before starting Grey Parrot. So this is not my first attempt at becoming an entrepreneur. So I uh, started my career, you know, studying economics, finance, thinking I'm going to be a banker or consultant. Graduated in 2008 in the midst of the first financial crisis. So big disappointment in the system. So that was the first kind of pivot uh, there. And then I studied international business. And again, I thought I was going to work for big brands and big corporates. And then I did during my master's degree in exchange at NUS in Singapore and lived there for a year. And I focused some of my work on entrepreneurship. And so I had to build kind of a a business case and a startup and start pitching to investors. It was almost like a real situation. And it was like a spark. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. This is it. I, you know, I love this world. I love this ecosystem. I, I want to build companies. I want to be surrounded by people that create so much change. And, and so that, that was the big shift for me. And mm. so when I won kind of a competition, when I was there, I came back to Switzerland and I said, okay, I'm going to live with my family and I'm going to spend six months and I'm going to try to build a company. <laughs> so that's wow. what I did first. And it was kind of this marketplace for beauty services. So I spent six, six, nine months again doing that. At the time, I had really no clue what I was doing. I mean, it, you know, and there was very little <laughs> ecosystem in Switzerland. I mean, it was it was quite hard, but I still had kind of a team and developers working for me. And we were prototyping, all that stuff. And that's when I started getting into lean startup mm. and doing workshops around that. So that was kind of my first trial and error education around this. It didn't work out. You know, I was in the wrong place, didn't really know what I was doing, but I learned a lot through that process. And then I got an opportunity in London to work with startups. So I moved to London with an opportunity to work with, not in a startup, but with startups and in the startup ecosystem. So I started Mm -hmm. building my network, understanding how companies succeed or don't succeed and speaking to founders. And so a lot of that knowledge started coming from there. Mm. And then I came across Blipper, that company that was doing AR very early on, this 2012, got fascinated by the sector. So second attempt to be an entrepreneur, I said, I want to take this concept and bring it to new countries. And so I, I, I sort of, with the founders, got their permission to representing them in different regions, especially Turkey, as I'm half Turkish, moved to Istanbul and started building the business there. And we became one of the most kind of popular high usage uh, regions for the company. Wow. And so they asked me to come back to the HQ in London and basically help with customers, international expansion, all of that. So I went back to working for a startup, but that was an extraordinary journey because I joined when we were about 30 people, went to 300 people, you know, worked with customers all over the world, launched new products, et cetera. So even though it was not my company, I felt like 
I was really part of the journey and I learned a lot from that. And so Grey Parrot was the third attempt and hopefully the right one. And by that time, I already had a lot of learnings, what it means to be an entrepreneur, to build companies. Of course, some of the things I had to learn on the go, many of it, but a lot of that self-education came from those lessons from, from previous you know, attempts, let's say. Okay, well, that's a pretty good foundation. I mean, you've learned from real experience, not just reading books on entrepreneurship. Okay, what about uh, money? So you you said six to nine months, you were prototyping and you know doing research, doing interviews. What did you and your founders do about money? Was it self-paid? What was the funding? So the first few months were, were self-pay for me and my co-founder, Rish. And then once a few other people joined us, we were able to raise uh, some funds from a family office at the start who knew us very well from before, who had seen us operate. And so there was a lot of trust of, you know, our ability <laughs> to build companies, even if the, the mission was very broad. So that was our first money in like a pre-seed that allowed us to do that prototyping and, and kind of research and product market fit journey. And then once we hit kind of that early product market fit, and in our first year, we went to market to raise our seed round. And so that was our first institutional round. In the end, we raised 2.8 million pounds uh, that was led by Speed Invest mm-hmm. uh, and an industrial tech team. And we had a few other funds come in as well, like Force Over Mass, Sky Ocean Ventures, 360 Capital, and so on. Okay. So that was our journey so far. So the f- initial money pre-seed you got because people knew you from Blipar? Is that where they knew you from? When you said yeah. they knew? Okay. And exactly. then And then when you went to institutional, how did you know which institutional VCs to go to? So I had never led a fundraise myself before as a CEO. So, you know, as much as I was close to it or read about it or seen lots yeah. of people around me do it, it is not the same as doing it yourself. <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing like being in the trenches on your own, but that's the way to learn. And I tapped into different things. So first of all, I did have a pre-existing network that could help me. This was mainly people that helped me connect with the right investors that believed in me, again, that had seen me work, that I interacted with, some people I had worked with before. So I really tried to leverage that network. The second most important thing for us was being part of these quite targeted accelerators. So for example, like Tech Nation Applied AI, so Mm. specialized accelerator for early stage AI companies in the UK. And as part of that, they introduce you to investors that are specifically interested in your stage of company, in AI, in deep tech, et cetera. And so that was very, very helpful, again, to get into these networks, to signal that we were fundraising. Uh, Same for kind of machine learning, digital catapult program. So specifically investors interested in machine learning and AI early stage. So we had the chance to pitch, for example, in front of 100 people. 100 investors quite early on. And so all of these things helped a lot Mm. um, to get that kind of access to the network. And then it was a very iterative process of understanding what responds, what the story that we're telling, what are, you know, where are we being challenged on? Where are we solid? And again, a lot of iteration 
to get kind of to the right message or keep doing research on certain things or keep having some proof points until we were quite solid. Okay. So go with your network and then try and join accelerator programs that are very specialized because they then have their network and their investors. So you can get in front of front of people through that channel as well. I mean, we all have different ways. I, I personally love being in networks and talking to people. I think that's the best way to learn and to go into things. But I, I genuinely believe that there is so much support for startups, especially in ecosystems like London uh, or other parts of Europe where really some people's jobs is literally to connect you with the right investor. Like that's their incentive. And so you might as well leverage that yeah. uh, as much as possible. And, and it's a lot about putting yourself out there. Also participating to pitches, you know, going to events, meeting people, discussing. So it's quite intense and time consuming, but at the end, it's, it's a bit of a domino effect, right? You start meeting five people, these five people introduce you to another five and, and, and you just yeah. start, signaling to the market, okay, this company is out there, they are raising, and then it becomes much easier to reach out to people. And I think something that we don't do often is also just really ask for introductions. Yeah. It can be a bit, you know, difficult to ask for help, but I think when you're an entrepreneur, you just have to accept that (laughs) you need help. And and especially when you're kind of a mission-driven, impact-driven company, people want to be part of your story. Yeah. They, they want to be part of your journey. They want to participate to your growth, even if you know they have zero incentive, just by the fact of giving you one contact or one introduction, and then you can give that back later on. But I think that kind of exchange of favors is a very important thing. Would you say the network and, and the same process is what you leverage to also get your first few customers? On the customer side, that was less network, I would say. We had to really kind of crack into the sector. So there was few connections, of course, like you always find someone, but that was very much, again, targeting very, very precise conferences or talks or accelerators that responded to that customer segment. But again, this was possible because we were very clear on who we were targeting. And so you're not spreading yourself saying Mm. I'm working with this industry and that industry and I could sell to this industry as well and this industry as well, because then it becomes very difficult to basically focus. But we knew who who we had to speak to. And again, we joined a few very targeted accelerators like Plug and Play Alliance and Plastic Waste, who had all the top big waste management companies and plastics recycling companies involved. We went to the key conferences in the UK around recycling. So, and really started building up the network there. We also connected with advisors from the sector that started helping us to get to those connections. And so a bit similar, but that was much more work going towards like very trade focused conferences and and networks around this. And I would say in any industry, you'll find that there will be a conference specialized in this or an association or, you know, some form of network that you can start with. And often, like I get this question a lot, but I find just going there and speaking to people and start networking somehow is literally the best way in to just getting to know who you're speaking to. And every industry will have their own kind of dynamics and ways of working, ways of talking and kind of start really 
mimicking that and understanding where they're coming from. You're right. You can just go to conferences, meet people, walk the hallways. But when you're doing it virtually, how did the pandemic really impact what you were doing? That's a great question. And actually, I was quite worried about that when it happened because we were like, okay, the access stopped. Like we can't go and meet people and it's much harder. But fortunately, somehow the world came together to kind of replace that with remote conferences and remote things. So I would say the depth of relationships was more difficult to get Mm. because you're not meeting people in person, but we could be present to many more things. So all of a sudden, instead of just joining one accelerator and being very focused there or one conference for three days in in a country, we could be in five different things at the same time just because it was all virtual. And so the volumes of connections really increased. I think it absolutely doesn't replace the in-person interactions, but it did still help and work. And everybody was still keen to connect, right? Nobody wanted to stop doing business. And again, a lot of these accelerators did a great job to adapt to that environment and still connect us uh, virtually. So the impact was not uh, as big as I thought, and we could leverage just a completely new way of connecting with much more, much more interactions. Well, that's really inspiring for people who may have hesitated because of the pandemic. Okay, I want to change direction and talk about you personally, because entrepreneurship is just so intense. My brother is an entrepreneur, and I think within a few years of being an entrepreneur, all his hair went gray. It's a really, really intense journey. And I'm curious to hear from you on what are you most proud about? So I think generally what I'm the most proud about is, is just having taken those risks throughout my journey at a time where it, it, didn't appear to necessarily make rational sense (laughs) for people around me and just listening to that instinct, although sometimes it's very hard. And I think you do need some courage, bravery (laughs) in there uh, to do these things. And essentially now it led me to be somewhere where of course it's hard and challenging. And like you said, entrepreneurship is is not uh, for the faint hearted, but I do feel like I'm, exactly doing what I'm supposed to do, working with the right people, working on the mission that I care about, bringing values to a company that are so dear to me. And that, I think a lot of people can't say that in their day-to-day. That's probably the thing I'm the most proud of. What about self-doubt and all the sort of personal stress that you have to deal with because things don't always go the way you want it to go or plan it to go. And you now have people that depend on you. So it's not just you. How do you deal with those uncertainties and stress and self-doubt? So I think that's one of the biggest areas that entrepreneurs have to work on that we don't talk about is building that resilience. Because at the end of the day, it is literally the question of endurance and resilience. It's how much are you going to keep going (laughs) compared to others? Uh, And again, that's something I learned a lot throughout the journey of having different failures, disappointments, and that triggers many things inside of you. It can be shame or self-doubt or whatever that may be. And it's working on those areas is understanding, okay, why is this coming from? Why, Why do I care so much about what people think? What is success for me? Why do I care about and starting to become very aware and conscious of these things. 
And so as much as we spend time talking about, you know, product market fit and how to raise and all these things are very important, of course, but there's so much work to be done on yourself. You're right. Like your energy, your stability, your confidence is guiding many other people. And so your own wellness, your own ability to center yourself is actually becomes business critical. And so for me, I did spend a lot of time, you know, taking care of myself or doing yoga, or whatever that may be. And all these learnings, I now take them uh, into what I'm doing. And that's kind of finding the balance of, you know, you're pushing yourself and you have high stress levels, but you also have to manage that very, very carefully. Because if you as the leader fall into burnout or into stress, all of that is like a a domino effect on the rest of the team. And so fortunately we speak about this a little bit more, but I spend a lot of time on that and managing stress levels and all these things, because at the end of the day, you you need to have that strength for the rest of the company and that endurance to, to keep going. Yeah. Well, Michaela, you sound, make it sound so easy, but I know it's not that oh, easy. Not easy. <laughs> and, and, you know, I know that you're pregnant and you're planning to take time off. I can't even imagine how, how did you decide that it was fine to have a baby while you're doing the startup and it's in such an early stage? Because that's like a baby on its own. Because I think that's another thing that probably holds back a lot of women who have great ideas and probably would love to do this, but they also want to have a family. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a a great question and a very important one. And for me, it comes from the fact that from society's messages, we grew up with this kind of binary choice of either a family or you're going to have a great career. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a bit exaggerated, but there is this unconscious choice. For me, it, it, it was it was really very prominent from my early 20s, pushing me towards that choice. So I've heard things like, you know, you're working too much. You're never going to find someone. What are you doing? You're wasting your life. Like, you know, which probably my men counterparts were not hearing as much. And so very early on, we're put in this kind of very difficult choice that doesn't make sense. And we don't take risks or opportunities because we fear, okay, if I do this, I'm not going to be able to have a family or be happy or whatever that may be. And so that's something that I had to fight in my head uh, for a long time. And actually that's the biggest thing I, I want to be an example of. And I really admire women that take that leap as well is how do we start combining both? Because there's very few women entrepreneurs. Yeah. One of the prime time of starting a company is probably, you know, mid twenties, early, mid thirties. And that's also, you know, if you think it's going to be like a five, 10 year journey, it's also the prime time to <laughs> basically have a family. Biology has not changed yeah. for us. And so we have to be able to combine both. It's it's almost like it's, it, why is it such a taboo essentially and, and, and a problem? I struggle with that. I was very hesitant when I saw Grey Parrot, that was my biggest barrier, I would say, of being scared that I can't do both. And it came from seeing other women as few examples, including Mary Utier that I know was on your podcast a few weeks ago. And 
you know, you see one example, you see that it's possible, that gives you hope. There's another person that does it. And so for me, it was that. And I was like, I'm not going to stop my life just because there's these stigmas or things. There's other people that did it. I can continue and maybe it will inspire other women to do so. And also what I realized is that there is simply never the right time for things and it's not really in your control. And so if you wait and wait and wait for everything, you you basically miss out on life. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs do that is that they build their companies, but they're miss out on their own lives. And again, that doesn't become sustainable. It's, it, it was also obviously because this is what I want for my personal life, but it was almost more like a, like a mission. <laughs> this is the world I want to see. You just have to be more proactive about planning and about prioritizing and making the time for both of those worlds to exist. So if you're more proactive and more aware, you can probably make it happen. But again, I know what I'm saying sounds easy. It's probably much harder in practice. You're planning to take some time off, for example. I would love to hear what are the plans or systems or processes you've put in place for things to keep moving on while you take some time off to have a baby? So Anita, I'll tell you the theory and then when I'm back, we'll have to see how it works. But this is at least the plan. So first of all, I think it starts even way before being pregnant or wanting to be pregnant. It's just how you build a culture where integrating your personal life and work life is okay. I I think it really starts there. And for me, that was very important from the start. And actually that allowed us to attract quite unique people, much more experienced people that, you know, didn't see the startup as this kind of frantic 24 seven and you stay every night up until 3 AM, but rather this kind of highly ambitious, productive, but you still can live a life like a normal person at the same time. And so that, that was the starting point. It was part of the culture from, from day one, really. And then what I'm doing is that First of all, it forced me to think a lot about my role and what I do. And so especially in this phase now where we went from like very early stage to post-seed stage startup. So we grow from about six people to now 16 people. And so it was in any case an operational step change where we had to rethink our systems, rethink how we work together. And I had to rethink my role as CEO already. And I literally wrote down every single thing that I do everything from admin to finance to, you know, office work to (laughs) customers, fundraise. I just literally started noting down, okay, what are the things that it really doesn't make sense for me to do? And if I was actually just focusing on these two, three other things that would bring so much more value to the company and already doing that forced to kind of hand over some of these tasks or things that really don't make sense for a CEO at our stage to do it, not early on and hiring accordingly. It's a lot of planning around essentially people and their responsibilities and hiring people that you trust that can take on board and, and letting go a bit of the control as well. And as you're focusing on very specific areas. So for example, we hired head of partnerships on the sales side. So very often what happens is that the founder who's the first kind of seller in the company that keeps going on. And the problem is you become the only person that can do that. And that whole reliance is on you. So regardless of pregnancy or not, this is a classic problem. So we introduced a person 
to support that, who's actually much more experienced and better than me for the sector. And, you know, you realize actually somebody else can do that very well. Same for the administrative work. You always think, oh, no, no, but that's easy. It's a small thing here. It's a small thing there. I'm just going to keep doing it. But it's actually a lot of things to do. And you have other people that can take that on, on board where you can focus on other things. And so we also hired a chief of staff to take on board a lot of that kind of broad work around admin operations and so on, uh, which has been extremely helpful. So that's the plan until now. And then I plan to take three months where the business is not relying on me operationally. So I'm in kind of the handover (laughs) mode here. I'm going to admit it's very difficult to let go because, you know, it is your own company, your own baby, essentially. But it's also about being flexible, right? So I spoke to quite a few female founders who've gone through this journey and you've, you've got all the stories from, oh yeah, I took like two weeks and I was back doing calls to, I had to take six months to, I had to take three months. So there's no rule book here. Mm. So for me, it's planning something, but also giving myself the flexibility of if I want to go back into the business and talk to everyone every week or be involved in certain meetings whenever I want, then I can also do that. So I think that's important to keep that flexibility as well. Yeah. I always think of life in phases. It's not like you do this and then you're done and then you do this. You have phases and now you're you know, transitioning to a different phase and then that phase will be over and then you'll be transitioning back to being a mother and an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's kind of a continuum. Absolutely. It's an ever-evolving thing. And even again, without pregnancy or not, the startup evolves all the time. Like the, the system you build for six people is not the same that you build for 16 people. And then you're going to start having certain types of customers and investors. And you have to change that again with 25 people, 30 people, and hopefully, you know, with many more, but, and it's kind of, again, it's part of our culture is accepting that change is constant. Like this will change all the time. Like we have a system now, but this will be different tomorrow. And, and being able to evolve with that helps a lot. So again, this is the theory. I'll let you know how it goes. In but I, I just want to add one more point that, you know, I think really moving from this narrative of this is a weakness to this is a strength is so important. I had to go through that journey because I really saw it as a weakness at the beginning, but it brings so much strength because like you said, you have to self-organize much more. You have to think ahead. You have to really be more strategic. And so it just forces you to think in a certain way that maybe too many entrepreneurs wait to do for, for too long. And again, from a talent attraction perspective, it's amazing. The messages I get or the people that want to work with us just because it's like, wow, okay, this is the type of company where you are able to do this. You can talk about this openly. We were able to attract incredible talent because of this philosophy, because of our mission, but also because of our philosophy of work. And so that's something that if we think about from a business perspective, it is so important too. And I think that's going to be increasingly important for companies to think about. That is so inspiring, Michaela, and such a positive way to think about being a woman, an entrepreneur and having this transition, you've really, at least like you said, in theory, turned it into a positive rather than a handicap. There's one more thing I wanted to say is that this is also very possible based on the people you have around you. And you're again, I'm in a very lucky position where my husband is also going to take a lot of time off, six months taking time off 
to support, obviously to take care of the baby and support me. And I think that's critical as well. And when companies think about their policies, it's not just about the people in their companies that you're supporting the whole ecosystem and, and women to be able to thrive because if your partner can't take time off and you can't take time off, these things become just very, very difficult and also financially difficult. So I think that's a very important aspect and people need to realize how much paternity leave is key in the equation to support women as entrepreneurs or in their careers to thrive and, and, and creating more normalcy around that is, is really part of the solution that we need. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you said that because you're right. Like we don't talk enough about that part of it. And it's such an important part that we need to talk about if we have to get this gender equality thing correct. So thank you very much for bringing that up. That. So we've come to the end, but I have this round called the rapid round where I just ask you questions about like, what's your favorite book, for example? Yeah. So my favorite book uh, that I want to to bring up today is Donut Economics from Kate Rayworth. And so she's a, she's an economist and essentially she really thinks about the economy in a different way. Um, trying to think about how do we build an economy that, you know, allows us to thrive as a planet. So, you know, building an economy that is within our, our ecological boundaries while lifting everybody up and giving the minimum health and comfort to everyone as well. And I think that's so important because it's essentially a lot of the problems that we see both from a sustainability, gender equality standpoint are rooted in our economical political system. And this book is a great way of understanding, first of all, where the system come from, what assumptions have been done to do that, and then proposing solutions on how we could shift this forward because our continuous thriving for growth and GDP growth it is simply not sustainable. And this is where a lot of the issues we're facing right now are coming from. And so this is a great framework for people that know economy or don't know economics to start understanding the root causes of some of these problems. I love it. I love it. Definitely. I'm going to put that on my list. I'm doing a fiction now, but I think that's the next one I'll pick up. What about a favorite European city? So I'm going to say Madrid. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I lived there for two years. I love Spanish. I love the language, the people, the joy of life that they have, the weather. And Okay. What about uh, a productivity tip or productivity tool that you use? We talked about productivity a bit. Is there any... Yeah. Productivity tip is remove all notifications from every app on every phone, on every laptop. We live in a world where, you know, everybody's trying to grab our attention. These tools are extremely sophisticated to like hack our brain. Yeah. And so I just accept that, like, I'm not, you know, superhuman. These things work on me. And so I, I remove them completely to be able to focus. And I think that's the the most difficult thing to do today is to properly focus on things. And I also don't have my phone in my room at all at night. Hmm. So the room, the, the phone stays outside of the room. And again, just being able to have space to think versus being constantly digitally uh, interrupted, interrupted is, is I think a key for focus. Okay. I love it. And my last question quote, that you like, that it's either yours or something that you, you know, say to yourself or to your 
to your fellow employees? Uh, so for me, it's be the change that you want to see in the world from Gandhi. Yeah. That's been a guiding principle for many years for me for now of, you know, taking the leap, having courage and just being the person that you want other people to be like around you or taking action in a way that you want to see the world become. And so both on the work side and the personal side, that's been a, a very big guiding principle for me. Yeah, it's a very powerful, powerful quote. I love it. Thank you, Michaela, for joining me on this morning podcast. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I'm so excited with what Grey Parrot is doing in such an impactful space that you're trying to make a difference in. And I'm so happy to hear about your pending maternity leave. And I look forward to seeing how everything evolves and best wishes. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.